0: My guest demonstrates you do not need connections in order to become the chief baseball officer slash president of baseball operations. Creativity, hard work, elite relationship building has allowed Derek Falvey to work through the Cleveland Indians organization. And even though he was the number three person in the organization, was hired as the general manager of the Minnesota Twins. If they qualify for the playoffs in the next week. It will be three out of four years since he's been in charge that the team has made the playoffs. Welcome, Derek Falvey. When we first had the opportunity to work with the Twins you know, and looking at you know, potential candidates, your background and where you were sitting in your organization wasn't one that leaped to the top but as we got to talk to you and and started to unpack your background and the things you did i i'd like you to talk a little bit about your background about your family and how you did some things with the cape cod how you were really a self starter and was able to really have this passion and was able to drive it to the point now where you you took your team last year and won the uh, division championship so I, Your story is remarkable. I I don't think there's anyone I know in professional sports that sits in the role you do that has had the journey that you've had.
1: I've been incredibly fortunate in my career to have some role models, examples um, throughout the course of my professional life, but also my personal life that showed me uh, how to go about continuing to pursue your goals and and your dreams. As you said, I was very fortunate that, you know, I didn't have any connections to professional sports. I didn't have any specific um, kind of unique in, in, so to speak, uh, to get into the game. Uh, but, and I grew up in an area for, for a, a working class family who you know, went about it and tried to do everything they could uh, to, to continue to put the, our family in the best position day in and day out. And, and so I saw what work ethic was from, you know, my father uh, who, you know, left the, left the house every day at four thirty in the morning to go to his construction work and show up, you know, later in the day at my, at my baseball game or, or whatever sport I was playing, um, you know, all dirty and, and going through it, but being a a role model for me. And then as I grew up and, and moved along from there, I got a chance uh through through sports to see so much of what the opportunity was in sport to continue to impact lives, impact young people's lives, impact the community. And when I got a chance to potentially uh think about what my career would look like, I, I just didn't know I didn't know anything else other than finding a way to work in baseball. That was what was most important to me. I wanted to find a way to impact the game. I loved it. I was passionate about it. So I went and scouted on my own. I, I didn't know anybody, didn't have anybody that uh, could necessarily give me that job or opportunity, but I figured why not get started and go out there and uh, put myself in a position to evaluate players, evaluate. I loved the game. I was passionate about learning about the insides of the game. Uh, and as I did that, I was able to build some, some relationships and, and a network of people uh, along the way who were willing to help me out you know, and say, hey, you know, there's a young kid. I just out of college trying to find a way in a game with, with no real clear opportunity, but they saw the work ethic that I had and the, and the passion I had for what I was doing. And I was able to then build from there, uh, the from that moment going forward to find a way to impact uh, the scouting community and, and ultimately got an internship with the Cleveland Indians. And from that point forward, just got a, a chance to work for the likes of Mark Shapiro and Chris Antonetti and Terry Francona, Mike Chernoff and others that. Made such an impact on me and my career and my life over time. And uh, eventually got the chance to to come up here to Minnesota and and hopefully make an impact in this community as well. When
0: we first met, what I was most most impressed with was what you did in terms of doing your videos of the Cape Cod League, in terms of what you were scouting and how you did that. I mean, that just in terms of being an entrepreneur and coming up with uh, the way you presented this data and this information. I thought was unique. And I think it was part of what had made you successful within the Indians organization, being able to find, you know, different places where they needed something and you were able to figure it out. And I'll go through a couple of those later. But if you just talk a little bit about what you did with the Cape Cod League, I found that really fascinating.
1: Yeah, you know, when I knew I wanted to work in the game, I loved I loved analyzing players. I loved watching the game from a, a different angle, not just the the fan side of enjoying the win and the loss, but you know, what makes a player good, you know, and trying to understand what specifically uh, would drive success for a, for an amateur player ultimately all the way up through the big leagues. And I got the chance, you know, um, because I lived in the Boston area to see some of the best collegiate per, uh, baseball every summer you know, through the Cape. Anytime I would go see a game there. I wasn't down there a lot, but I knew that that was a tremendous league, even as a, a younger uh, baseball fan, so to speak. And so I thought to myself, if I'm going to work in baseball, I've got to prove that I, I don't have any background in it. I didn't play professionally. I've got to prove that I have the ability uh, to come in and help an organization you know, from day one. So I went down to the Cape, uh, drove down there regularly, uh, fought the traffic from time to time, found a way to um, go scout games, take my own video, slice it up. And my goal there was twofold, to give that video to teams and, and maybe the scouts who could use it to build relationships, the network, but also to then uh, learn how to scout and really train my eye around evaluating that talent. And maybe then there was a mutually beneficial relationship that was, that was created between me as kind of an independent uh, scout or analyst down there that could help a scout who came into town evaluated the league, then had to go back home to their to their location in California or somewhere else. And so I, I had the chance to build relationships while I was there, but I also got a chance to analyze you know, the quality of the players in that league. And a number of them are strewn across Major League Baseball, even still today, that I remember watching that summer and evaluating. I still have my notebook with all my notes and, and what I thought about each of those guys. And uh, I was right about some, I was wrong about others. That's part of scouting, and, and trying and to figure it out. But what it did was it gave me now, I wasn't afraid to fail. I was willing to put myself out there and put myself in a position to try and earn an opportunity. And when I got to Cleveland, I think that was continued to be, uh, that was really supported. You know, Mark Shapiro created an environment where he said, you're going to have an internship, you're going to have duties, you're going to have things you have to do, but it's what you do with all the other time in a day, or, or when you don't have your duties, that's going to determine your success long-term. That's stuck with me for, forever that uh, you, you have a chance to react to what is happening in front of you or you have a chance to create your own path and your own plan. And I've been fortunate in my career that I've had bosses and mentors and others that have supported me when I've gone down that uh, that path. And it started in the Cape and it's it's hopefully uh, continuing to here today in Minnesota.
0: What do you think were the two or three key things you did uh, as you worked your way up through the organization and eventually you know, developed? a way to evaluate pitchers and had this unique relationship with your manager in which you were almost indispensable to him based on you being able to take data and explain it to him and you two just having this incredible relationship.
1: I think what really allowed me to have some success uh, while I was there was, I've kind of learned this maybe in hindsight, even more than, than what I felt in the moment. Was that I really was passionate about helping other people do their jobs to the best of their ability. What I loved was trying to create connections between people, trying to put the puzzle pieces together around how do we evaluate pitching, then how do we coach it, then how do we develop it, you know, all the way up through the major leagues. How do we create resources that can help those guys become the best versions of themselves? And so I think that's the that that's one of the key goals of a successful front office or a coach or a leader in sport is. the the work needs to be done on the field. We all know if we work in a front office or as a coach, the job is to get the players to be the best versions of themselves. And there's so many people that can help that happen along the way. And I was really passionate about that. You know, when you talk about the relationship with Terry Francona uh, specifically, and really all the staff that was there in Cleveland, I loved the chance to be around and learn from them and to help them do, as I said, their jobs to the best of their ability. So I tried to learn how they were interpreting the game, what to, what Tito was trying to do on the field on a daily basis, how he was trying to impact culture and decision making, and what he was doing, and then see if I could find ways to help link those decisions, link those uh, th- that environment up to what we were doing in the front office uh, on a daily basis, and try and be a, a positive force in that environment to be able to to move the ball forward. A lot gets made of analytics in sports these days, and how you how you use data, and it's important. It's critically important. But if we don't know how to translate that, if we don't know how to have that conversation with a player, with a staff member or otherwise, it won't land. It won't have any impact. You can't just hand over a binder of information and hope that a player or a staff member uh, just comprehends it all and just runs with it. You want to make sure that you have those conversations. So what really stands out hopefully in my career is I'm passionate about other people doing their jobs really well. uh, And I hope that I can make that impact across our organization now. But I hope I've made that impact along the way, whether it was a senior person to me or a junior person to me. It doesn't matter. Make I like in empowering people to be the best versions of themselves.
0: There's no doubt you're an elite relationship builder. And I think that has been something that you learned at an early age, probably, you know, based on growing up with your family and dealing with a variety of people that regardless of who it is, you can make people feel comfortable. You can put them at ease. You know describe the uh, the environment
1: we certainly take it incredibly seriously the responsibility of being in in the Twin Cities and being here in Minneapolis really at the epicenter of this conversation around social justice and and what has transpired uh, since the murder of George Floyd and I can tell you that I feel incredibly lucky first and foremost that I get to work for an owner in sports uh, in an ownership family the Pollat family and Jim Polat who made a significant commitment to this effort, and have been at the forefront, uh, making a $25 million pledge to to these efforts here in our town and in our region, and and have made a huge difference in being part of the conversation. Uh, that we've been as a Twins organization had the chance to to discuss this uh, as internally with our people, with our players, with our staff, with our manager, but also then standing up and being a, a positive force for change in our community. And I, I hope that we'll continue to use our platform in sports to make sure that that we we play a role in advancing social justice issues going forward.
0: I'd like to talk a little more specifically about some of the pitching things that you did because you really embarked on a study, as I recall, having to do with pitching and being able to really make a difference in your staff in Cleveland.
1: It was a it was an interesting history when I go back on it and I think about it now. I remember. Going back, geez, more than 10 years ago now, but at some point <laughs> along the way, I was always passionate about pitching and, and I was always passionate about the way pitchers develop. I was myself a failed pitcher along the way uh, into college. And, you know, it was someone it's something that I always I enjoyed I, I, even I, as far back as I can remember in baseball. Uh, so that passion li- it was within me. That said what I think when I got to Cleveland when I was afforded the opportunity to do, and this was a credit to the to the mentors and the bosses that I had was that they always allowed you to explore topics that you were passionate about and they they challenged you to find a way to make an impact with us. They didn't care if you were there for ten minutes or or thirty years if you had a chance and an idea to make an impact you you got to bring it to the table, and I was very fortunate that during that time there was a a moment in time where as an organization we weren't developing or selecting pitching um, as well as we could have been and and we wanted to figure out why with some injuries with some guys that weren't progressing as quickly as we would have liked so we did a great deal of studying of what made pitchers good over the years you know baseball's been around for a long time and there's a lot of history here and going back you know 50 to 100 years you can watch some different clips of guys and there were some commonalities uh, around pitching that we wanted to explore and study and dig into uh, further and further and uh, as we got further into that we started to be able to bridge a conversation between our scouts and our people on the on the ground who were evaluating players between our player development staff you know the people who were coaching those 17 18 19 year olds along the way and ultimately ma- a major league staff that had to execute on a daily basis in that space and I think what came out of it was a really good discussion about how pitchers train, you know, different things that were, uh, not as, as often utilized in our sport at that time, uh, that were being utilized in different areas, maybe in the collegiate space, maybe in, uh, some private training areas. I got a chance to go train, go travel and see some of those locations and watch what teams were, do- uh, college teams and private facilities were doing, uh, to develop, to develop pitching. I remember the Texas baseball ranch and visiting that when that was, uh, a little bit lesser known uh, to the baseball community and what we were able to do was kind of come up with an organizational philosophy around around what we were going to search for in scouting what we were going to going to select and ultimately how we were going to develop that and it, it came from so many different people you know, it was the input it was a collaborative process around understanding what made this this work and how do we how do we advance this then there was true alignment at the end of it all we all believed that this was the right way to, to evaluate the, the pitching in our organization. And, and then we moved it forward. And clearly, um, the Indians have done a tremendous job you know, over time developing and selecting pitching. It continues today. Quite frankly, on the other side of it, it's now frustrating <laughs> because I, I get to watch it from a, a competitive seat. And, and they do a tremendous job. But it really was about... Collaboration, open-mindedness, and alignment—ultimately on how we were going to push forward a pitching program.
0: So you talk about alignment. Here you are hired to come in in the Minnesota Twins. They have a, a, a general manager that's been there a long time. They have a well-renowned manager that was a Hall of Fame player. So talk about how you identify and establish alignment with ownership. With the front office, with the manager, with the players, and building your staff.
1: I was fortunate when I came over um, to the Twins that I had I had watched people like Mark Shapiro and and Chris Antonetti and and Terry Francona and others lead, and I saw the way they uh, invested in individuals and in the conversations and the relationships. Now, what I hadn't seen. Uh, was much transition. You know, I was very fortunate when I got to Cleveland that things were already operating and and were pretty well aligned. Certainly there were differences and new people came in along the way and new ideas had to be integrated. But by and large, a lot of it was already uh, in a great spot because of those leaders and because of the way they went about uh, making change. So I had to adapt what I saw that worked really well uh, in a new environment with people that didn't know me at all, <laughs> that that had no background with me and hadn't uh, necessarily, for any reason, had any reason to trust me, so to speak, a- at the time. And so when I walked through the door, my key uh, approach in the first, uh, really six months to a year or otherwise, was to start with the relationship piece, was to build connections with the individuals, was to show them that you know, I was not here with all of the answers. I, I wasn't going to raise my hand and say, I know all of the answers to what we need to do going forward. We're going to need to figure out collectively how we get to uh, to conclusion. I have ideas. I have plans. I have a structure and a vision for what our culture is going to be like. But it's going to re- it's going to require the multiple hundreds of people that are working in this space across our organization to ultimately pull on the same end of the rope and and get us moving in the same direction. So I had the chance to work with, as you mentioned, you know, some, some tremendous people who had been in this organization for a long time and, and still are connected to the organization uh, in many ways, but I wanted to build trust. And the only way to do that uh, really is to be, is to be vulnerable right from the outset is to, is to share some level of vulnerability around, Hey, we've got to figure this out together and I don't have all the answers and I'm going to need your help along the way. And hopefully over time, we built a culture where uh, it became a safe place for people to share ideas, for people to disagree, uh, for us to bring new, new ideas to the table. We ultimately did hire quite a few people from outside the organization to bring in new concepts to help us advance that. But we wove together those new people with a number of people who were already in the organization. And that, I think, is what I'm most proud of. This was not a, a group, Jed, as you know that uh, didn't have a lot of history i mean they had a great deal of history in this organization some great baseball people some impact people and we wanted to make sure that we wove those people together with some new ideas to take what was great about the minnesota twins for so many years and and weave that together with some some new advancing ways of moving the ball forward in baseball and that I'm, i'm most proud of that we got a chance to without clearing out the the organization and starting from fresh we were able to Maybe change some minds and make an impact with a lot of different people in the organization uh, to take us to where we are today.
0: You've got unique talent in that you understand player development and you also understand scouting, and that's a, a mix that not every person in your role has. How have you been able to build this competitive roster so quickly that you were able to to win your division and now with this your current format? you'll be in the hunt for another playoff opportunity.
1: I, I think what, what, when I think about our team and I think about what you asked the front end there about player development and scouting, uh, it's often a conversation about, uh, it's one of those chicken or egg conversations. You know, what, what comes first? Do you evaluate the good, talented players and do the scouts get the credit, so to speak, or is it the development of, of players and along the way that become uh, impact types in your organization? And, I actually think there's no chicken or egg conversation here. It's got to be both. It's, you've got to find a way to evaluate key key markers in talent. What makes a player good? Understanding makeup, understanding the talent and the tools and the ability on the field. But then you've got to coach them. You've got to make them better. I just don't believe. I don't believe in the word ceiling. I, I think that's a bad word in sports. You know, what's a guy's ceiling? What's his what's his top level? It's like, well, that's kind of unknowable. We can make a guy better if we coach him. And he's got the, the mindset and the willingness to get better. That's got to be our, our culture and that's our environment. And I think what over the last few years we've been able to do, uh, and, and hopefully, you know, in, in the this will be my fourth season here. And if we can get a chance to make the playoffs this year, to, to make the playoffs in three of four seasons would be you know, a tremendous accomplishment. And with a lot of the players that were already in this organization, and I think we've created an environment where we just don't let anyone put Limits or or limitations on the players or the staff or or who's in the environment. Are we going to win some games and lose some games? Sure. Are we going to have bad stretches of of play? Absolutely. That's part of sport. But if we set an environment up where the culture is, we're going to be the best version of whatever we can be, and we're going to win that night. We're going to play that night's game to win. And if we lose, we come back tomorrow and do the exact same thing. We just never get ourselves mired in worrying about what has happened in the past. Let's always be looking forward, always making it better. We've made some good decisions I think around the players we've added to our environment, some leaders in our our, our clubhouse that have helped advance us and move us forward. Uh and then we've 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 been able to grow and develop the talent that's already in the organization. And that's a credit to the, the previous group and, and and Terry Ryan and what he laid the foundation for and our scouts did For a lot of really talented players in this organization, we just wanted to find a way to get even more out of them as we went forward. And I credit Rocco and the staff and everybody else who's been able to do that over the last couple of years.
0: When you think about two or three traits that across the board, whether the amateur draft or you're looking to acquire someone, what are the two or three things, regardless of whether it's a pitcher, you know, a middle infielder, what are the two or three traits that are really important to you as you've developed your Philosophy.
1: People talk. To, they use the word makeup a lot about you know, what is makeup, and and I think sometimes it's misunderstood that it's uh, a good guy, you know, so to speak, or, or a nice guy, or or someone like that. And I think that's not the point when you talk about makeup in sports. Uh, it's not that we don't want great guys and good guys. No question, we want that. But there's an there's an edge and a competitiveness between the lines for some players that sometimes borders on not being so nice. Right. <laughs> I think like you need to find. Uh, do you need to try and understand what's this guy's competitive edge, you know, because it's going to get hard. You know, when you, when you draft a player out of high school or college, it's very likely he's been the best player on his, uh, little league team, high school team, collegiate team, and otherwise along the way, but when you get into professional baseball, now everyone's really good. Now everyone's the best of where they came from. So who is going to be the guy who's going to fight through that challenge? who's going to rise above when everybody else is just as good as they are from a talent standpoint and exceed expectations, so to speak. So we try and really identify makeup and mindset traits that will allow a guy to persist uh, and and have that competitive edge. The second piece is uh, a willingness to accept and embrace the idea of failure. I think that's a a strange word to use in sport when people say embracing failure. And what I mean by that is not that you like it or, or you enjoy failing. That's not the point. It's the willingness to go into something in a game, uh, in a practice, in a training session and not ultimately succeed in what you're trying to do. But with the idea that you're getting better by trying it, that you're willing to try something that's a little bit harder than what you are capable of doing today, because that's stretching your limits. That's giving yourself a chance. And some players, quite frankly, uh, are um, in any sport. That I've come across in the in the amateur space and even into our minor leagues are, are somewhat afraid of failure. They they don't want to put themselves out there and and maybe look bad as they're making a change or an adjustment. But the guy that's willing to say, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna push through this limit. I'm, I might look bad as I'm making the swing adjustment, but I will be better for it in the long run. Uh, we look for that quite a bit and try and find and identify those mindset traits as well.
0: You're looking at hitters. Or is there one or two things that you're really looking for?
1: You know what? It's so different as to where they are on, on, on the end of the spectrum in their development. I think when we think about amateur hitters, uh, we're looking for a lot of projectability. You know, we're not looking for a finished product, so to speak. So how does the body work? How athletic is he? You know, how, 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 does his, uh, how are his baseline athleticism traits? Because we think that in an environment where if we do a good job of identifying good makeup, good mindset traits, all of those things I just mentioned, and we see an athlete, we can teach some of the skills. We think we can teach the ability to, uh, to make adjustments along the way if they're willing to make those adjustments. Uh, and, and so certainly bat to ball skills, you know, there's a knack some players have for, uh, lacking swing and miss, just the ability to get the barrel to the ball. That's a, that's a unique and innate trait, so to speak. So we're always looking for that, but we want to see athleticism. We want to see the ability to potentially have game changing. Um, just underlying athleticism allows for it at the major league level. It's a different animal. You know, you've got a, a chance to acquire through trade uh, a player who's already probably closer to uh, closer to a finished product. So to speak, he's already performing at that level. We're looking for guys that really, we understand their approach, you know, that can over time, maybe make adjustments uh, along the way. It's sometimes you let that, that athleticism play, but you need to know what a pitcher's trying to do to you. And when we have our scouts and our evaluators and otherwise, Try and identify does this guy, is this guy capable of making adjustments? Because as he ages, as any hitter ages, uh, they're going to, some of their skills will go backward a bit. And so, how are they going to adapt to that change as they go forward? It's an important distinction that we try and figure out.
0: What are things that are really important when you're assessing a young pitcher or one that is more of a finished product?
1: At the young pitcher level, we are really maybe even more than the position players and the hitter, as you, as you just asked, even more focused on how the body moves and athleticism and how it works. You know, we talk about key delivery traits and, and what what shows up in a guy's movement pattern, so to speak, in his body uh, that allows him to grow. Because the vast majority of good major league pitchers, uh, they weren't necessarily throwing 97 miles an hour when they were 16 years old. You know, they were they were guys that probably were. Uh, maybe a little underdeveloped, so to speak, in their bodies. But they had a really good feel uh, feel to pitch, a really good feel to spin the ball, you know, throw a breaking ball, uh, and the ability to to grow their body. You know, you're looking for a projectable body that you know, you know when you get to the major leagues and you're hoping guys will throw 200-plus innings you know, over the course of the season, you've got to know that they're, they're durable enough to do that. And so identifying how athletic they are, how strong they are, how, how they can grow and develop over time and what their movement pattern is, that stands out uh, quite a bit. For a, for a more of a major league pitcher, again, it's, it's much like what we just said with the, with, the, with the hitter is everybody's stuff over the course of their career will decline. You know, the guys who throw 97, at some point they don't anymore. They throw 96, then 95, then 94. Who's the guy that's going to find a way to pitch and make adjustments along the way? I mean, velocity is a big part of our game right now. But what we've found is that for a number of pitchers, if they can adapt and make adjustments along the way, when their velocity declines some, they can still be effective. And we need need to identify who those guys are who aren't just throwers, guys who really know how to pitch.
0: Talk about your relationship with your manager. You know, you talked about data early on on how that's used and how it can be overused. But how do you integrate that so that you give your manager the maximum opportunity to use his talent on a daily basis.
1: We are incredibly fortunate to have you know Rocco Baldelli a part of our group and, and, he, and as a leader in our organization. And I think what, what stood out with Rocco when we brought him on board and uh, when, we, when we asked him during the course of the interview you know, how he would go about managing was uh, kind of what I referred to earlier, which was he raised his hand and said, listen, I, I haven't been a major league manager. I, I don't have all the answers sitting in that seat. What I will want are a number of people surrounding me with different perspectives, different experiences, people who have a a totally different approach to the way they're thinking about the game so that I can better aggregate uh, a a diverse set of experiences and and inputs. And that has borne out during the course of that time. He was so instrumental uh, in, in helping us try and identify how do we use the information that we have? How do we use our scouting inputs? How do we use our data that drives us? So, and I think that in baseball, and this is probably true of every sport, but I can speak more to baseball than anything else. A lot of the work for a game gets done before the game in terms of preparation. You know, you know what your lineup is. You know what their lineup is. You know who might pinch hit for them. You know who might come in the game late from a reliever standpoint. You can kind of walk through some of those scenarios and situations. Rocco does that with his staff, with analysts in the room, uh, with other, with advanced scouts, with people that all have a different a perspective. And he asks a lot of questions. He doesn't come at it with the answer to, here's what I'm going to do in the seventh inning tonight, no matter what. It's, here's what I, I'm thinking about. What do you guys think? And he genuinely wants the answer from different perspectives so that he can better prepare himself for that decision when he gets there to the seventh inning. I think it's all about, in, in any walk of life, I think it's all about how you prepare and how you work and, and beforehand, before you have to get to that those critical moments. And Rocco does a tremendous job of sourcing information from so many people in our staff and having those conversations and then ultimately being prepared for when that decision has to get made late in the game. He already knows where he wants to go, which is a special thing for a young manager, someone who is is not as um, experienced in that space. He's already prepared when those decisions come.
0: The pandemic. Talk about, there you are, you're starting spring practice, all of a sudden it gets shut down. You've got no idea what's going to happen. Then they come back and say, you're going to play 60 games. Let's talk about what that's been like in terms of trying to get yourself ready to play. Obviously playing a lot of games in a shorter period of time and how that's affected pitchers and soft uh, tissue issues.
1: I can think back to the moment when we knew things were about to get shut down uh, as one of the, the crazier moments in my career. I mean, there was no question about it. You know, you're so, the thing about professional sports and really all sports is you're so routine oriented, you know, you know what your mornings look like, you know, what spring training looks like, uh, you know, at the end of spring training, kind of how it breaks up and how you get going to, to different locations uh, to your minor league affiliates and to, to your major league environment. We're so planned. And uh, there was no blueprint for this. <laughs> there was no, there was no uh, handbook, so to speak, for GMs across the game to say, here's how we're going to handle this when we shut it down. So we all had to adapt on the fly. And uh, and those days were, were challenging. I remember thinking. We're sending guys home. We want to get them home to safe places. We want to make sure we don't know how long this is going to last, but we want to keep everyone as prepared as possible uh, as we go through this process. And I think what really stood out was that the conversations we had with our players, with our staff, it was truly uh, something I'm most proud of. We had some of our more senior players in a in a room, Rocco, some of our staff, some of our front office, talking about how are we going to continue to keep guys ready and prepared, uh, even as we were breaking apart. Uh, in in Fort Myers and going back home uh, to to ride this out for a period of time, and we stayed so well connected. We sent equipment to guys' homes. You know, we we made sure they had baseballs and weight room, weight worm equipment and bands and uh, all kind of nets and, and, and tees to be able to do work where they were because most of their facilities that they would normally be at were shut down. You would normally go to a, a batting cage or whatever was in your home area, and some of those places weren't even you wouldn't they weren't even open. So we had to find ways to get guys to to continue to train and develop at home. Uh, we did a lot of distance-based coaching over over Zoom and and over FaceTime and otherwise to try and make sure that we saw how guys were working out from a weight room standpoint to a to a swing standpoint to to a throwing uh, consideration. And then ultimately, when we got back together uh, and we were planning to get back together, and we knew it was going to be a shorter ramp up to get going uh, at the at the big league level. Uh, we did anticipate, as you said, some risk associated with uh, some injuries. We just knew that guys getting ready in a shorter period of time could create some challenge. So we wanted to make sure with our pitchers, in particular, and you know, position players as well. But notably, our pitchers who were building pitch counts up. That we we really took we took care of them and were thoughtful about how we built up. So when we started the season, in normal years, you'd see a starting pitcher be fully built up to 100 pitches, you know, ready to go on on day one of a regular season, we knew we weren't there in terms of buildup. So we had to prepare for our starters starting the season with fewer than 100 pitches available to them and, and had to build out our bullpen a little deeper and and do what's called piggyback starting, where we had one guy go four innings and the next guy go three and, and try and build that up over time. And I'm really proud of the way our medical staff and performance staff, along with our coaches, came together to try and come up with a plan that has so far uh, put us in a pretty good position. Everyone's dealt with injuries. and Everyone's dealing with that going forward, no question. But I feel like, by and large, if we look across the game, I think our group has weathered that storm a little more than most.
0: How do you think the, uh, the COVID protocols have worked?
1: I think it's been a learning experience for everybody, for the players, for the front offices, for the staff. You know, at every turn, we had to figure out, okay, what is a road? What's a road trip look like? You know, being masked and distanced on buses and uh, limiting places to eat and eat together and and try and separate that. Uh, The the environments in our clubhouses don't look anything like they did before. You know, everyone's separated, spread out, very little time inside. We set up our ballpark in a way where we're utilizing outdoor spaces on the concourse, you know, in the absence of fans, uh, to do some of our, our weight room training and our, our stretching and our outdoor activities that would normally be done inside in the clubhouse and in that environment. So uh this has been a challenge for everybody to navigate, but I, I credit the league and everybody who was involved with this uh in trying to create an environment that is that is safe, that allows us to manage uh our players as the best we can. It has not been easy at every turn, but I can tell you that our players have adapted to those changes. And I think the league has come up with a plan that has allowed us to persist. And while we've had some outbreaks across the game and and some teams have been uh, hit by it a bit, I think by and large, uh, this has really worked well as an industry for our our sport so far without playing in a bubble, which has been a hard thing to do to to crisscross the country and to keep our season going. Uh, I think it's a credit to the work that the players, staff, and everybody's doing to to try and keep themselves themselves healthy through this time.
0: when you look at the unrest that baseball went through before this started and the fact there's a labor contract up in another year, how do you look at how baseball's perceived the game, things you might want to see adjusted to enhance you know the, even though you have no fans, would uh, enhance interest?
1: I think what has transpired hopefully over the last few months and while there were some challenging discussions as you mentioned, as we go into a new CBA uh, between the the league and the players association, I hope that uh, during this time, because of all of that conversation, because of all of those uh, back and forth exchanges around what we ultimately got to for this season, that we've laid some groundwork for, for really productive dialogue and conversation in, in this coming off season. And then ultimately the the subsequent one after 21. And I think that some of the things have already been incorporated in this season that may that may live on you know, in our game uh, and may have an impact. You know, We we have been playing some doubleheaders this year that are a little bit shorter, that are, that are seven-inning games, and it changes the way uh, you plan for your day. And I would say that uh, from a team standpoint and certainly from a GM standpoint, having to play 14 innings instead of 18 innings plus on a given day is probably a real positive to keep everyone uh, healthy as you go forward. But it's also given us a chance to play the game a little bit more efficiently and, and try and get through those games that have gotten a little long over time. So that could, that could persist going forward. I think our extra inning rule with, with a runner on second base has created some more excitement and as soon as the 10th inning uh, you get to the 10th inning and, and we see that and we're hearing that from fans. So I know Rob Manfred and, and uh, our commissioner and and everyone in the baseball central office is very attentive to the feedback we're getting around ways that we can continue to uh, enhance the the interest in the game, especially for our younger fans. And, uh, I can tell you that I know the conversations I've had internally with our ownership and with our group is that we're very open-minded to those changes because we want to continue to engage those young fans that, that have a number of choices, you know, in sports and, and what they're looking for and to continue to grow the game is a key initiative of of our commissioners and of our league. And I think this season has given us an opportunity to test out some of those things uh in in a shortened season that might ultimately help us along the way, you know, expanded playoffs um, rule changes in game. I'm excited to see how that will play out here in the in the subsequent off season.
0: In changing subjects since you're sitting in Big Ten country, how, how do you think college football is going to play out? Not just in the Big Ten, you see what's happening in the other conferences. You've got a concern. What are your thoughts around the health risks?
1: I've been following it certainly as as you have, and as we all have, who are compassionate about sport and just enjoy it. I love watching other sports as well, and college football being one of them and I think that there's been a lot of discussion, much like there was in our sport on the front end of how do you keep players safe and healthy first Let's start there and let's figure out you know, the next steps after that and I did have a chance uh, briefly when uh, Kevin Warren, who is now the big Ten commissioner who was uh, who was here in town as the COO of the of the Minnesota Vikings got a chance to meet him uh, some and a tremendous person and and someone I know is is an excellent leader in that space and I know he's got his hands full there's no question as a as Big Ten Commissioner right now and the challenges that are facing him but I I think by and large every league needs to start from a place of can we keep everyone health and healthy and safe first and then how do we how do we go from there and uh, while I don't know the inner workings of, of, what goes on in collegiate sports right now and how they're figuring that out, I do know enough people around, around the sport in the game that are focused on ways to, to make sure that those collegiate athletes are put in a safe and healthy position. And, uh, I, I, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens going forward. Maybe it is that spring football or whatever I read, you know, relative to everything else, but I know they'll find a path to it because it's, it's important for the players to play. They want to play and they're going to find a way to do that. If it means it's delayed, then. It's not ideal, but it is what it is. And I, I would support that if they felt that was the best thing for the health and safety, just as we have with our t- our players.
0: So just so our listeners know the playoff format this year, talk a little bit about how that's different than years past.
1: In normal years, and, and while it's changed some over the last really decade in professional baseball, you know, we have, we have a, a format that normally you would have three division winners. Uh, and two wild cards in each each league and that wild card round would just be that that one game and if you win it you move on which essentially means that only eight teams in any given year are playing in a playoff series uh, when when you get to the division series so it's kind of a that that's the that's the entirety of the playoffs in baseball which is very different than some of the other sports and um and for us this year with the expansion we're now going to from eight teams to 16 teams playing in a, a playoff series ultimately the first round will be a, a three-game set, uh, so best two of three, and then you'll move on to the division series, the league championship series, and ultimately the World Series. For us, that that makes it very different, uh, and it definitely made the trade deadline different this year. You know, when you have a chance for 16 of the 30 clubs to make the playoffs, there's a number of clubs that are still in it, so to speak. And in a normal year, some of those teams may sell at the trade deadline. Well, at this juncture and at this time there are so many teams still in the playoff discussion in a shortened season with with those 16 slots. So I think it'll be a fun finish to September. I think it'll be an interesting first round of a, a best-of-three quick sprint to try and get to the division series. I think it'll create a lot of excitement for the game when you have that many uh, cities and, and that many regions uh, excited about playoff baseball this year.
0: Now, the, the eight teams selected, they're based on winning percentage. Is that correct?
1: That's correct. So you'll have uh, traditionally the three division winners uh, from each league. Those three teams will be in the one through three slots. And then slots four through eight will be the next best records in the division. So winning percentage will ultimately drive uh, who gets in from from four to eight after that.
0: Because there may be some teams that may not make 60 games because of the games they missed based on the virus.
1: That's correct. And I think there's still to to be determined how we handle that. And the, the commissioner is obviously very much aware of that. I think we're fortunate to see that on the schedule right now, 60 games are still scheduled for for every team, I think, but the, the Cardinals and, and maybe the Tigers. So if they can find a way to squeeze in just a game or two more uh, that they don't presently have on their schedule, that will allow every team to get to 60, which would be ideal. If we end up short of that, I know the the league has come up with some plans and some ideas as to how to figure out who, who gets into one of those last spots.
0: Well, Derek, from when I first met you, uh, your ability to – be insightful, to connect, and to just bring people along with you to follow your vision. It was remarkable that first meeting when nobody really knew who you were and you were able to capture the room. So you've got the it factor, so to speak, as it relates to the way you relate to people and can make things happen. So it's been a pleasure knowing you and calling you a friend.
1: Well, thanks for having me on, Jen. I feel the same way, you know, as, as leaders in, in sport and otherwise. Uh, are fortunate to be in that position because of the people that have helped them along the way and uh, have helped identify key skills and otherwise. And I appreciate your friendship and insights in this space and your continued uh, passion about this because the, the only way we grow as leaders is to have conversations and to have discussions with people who really know and understand leadership across sport. And uh, you are clearly that. And I, I appreciate ha- having me on today and I having the chance to talk more about what it's like to, to navigate challenges and leadership in sports. So thanks so much.
0: Well, good luck in the playoff
1: hunt and uh, good health to your family. And again, thank you very much.